Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. The Thinking Practitioner Podcast is supported by ABMP Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. AMP, ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, quick reference apps, online scheduling, and payments with PocketSuite, and much more. And ABMP CE courses, podcast, and massage and bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including from my partner Till here and myself. And the Thinking Practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. And this episode's in-house sponsor is me and Advanced Trainings, my company. We offer all kinds of learning opportunities from one-hour certificate courses to ongoing study groups online and in person. I want to highlight a live online course we have coming up very soon. It's a training in our Principles of Advanced Myofascial Technique series. We've been evolving this online, hybrid online format, meaning you get a chance to review all the materials on your own and then meet live with us as the faculty. We've been doing that for about 20 years. And the latest revision, the latest version we're doing for this learning process really hits the right balance, I think, between learning at your own pace, getting personalized real-time interaction and support as you go through the material. You get lifetime access to the recordings, of the fully updated course materials, plus your choice of a variety of live every other week meeting times. Super affordable with discounts for ABMP members, AT subscribers, in-person course repeaters, and lots more. Check it out in the show notes or on my site, advanced-trainings.com. And you won't hey, be sorry. Hey, You'll be you. glad you did that. <laughs> yeah, my I won't be sorry. <laughs> nice, yeah. thank you. Right. Well, uh, how you been? What are we talking about today? What's up? Been been good. Um, I look down at my calendar, and today, or the date that we're recording this, says uh, April 12th on the calendar, but I woke up and there was snow on the ground this morning, and I'm thinking, like, I'm really over this. So uh, over it's been snow. nice that it's been a, you know, a wet winter out here in Central Oregon for the, the need for us to get some water, but um, in case nobody else got the message, we're done with winter here, okay? So, yeah. you know, we're done. I'm... I'm on the road. I was just down in Southern Arizona having some great family and a long time. And then I'm on my way back and I'm in Durango, Colorado, and they have so much snow there. We have so much snow. Yeah. There's a hot day yesterday and the river has just swelled its banks and it's really roiling and muddy, spectacular river down there right below me. Yeah. But, so it's yeah. an interesting, it's, it's one of those La something years. It's either uh, it's a La Nino or Nino. I can't remember. I can't I, can't ever get those straight which one it is, but it's it's la 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 something this winter here. Here we go. Yeah. What are we gonna talk about today? I think today we're talking about back pain. We're going back to it today. I'm gonna talk back about back to pain. It. Yeah. In honor of the upcoming back jam with mm -hmm. Diane Metkowski and we they're kind of an in-house sponsor too. We're gonna put a link to that uh in the show notes as well. We can go find out about what's happening there. And then my own spine course, but you got, you know, a lot about the back. So I'm really going to, if you're okay with it, I'm going to ask you some questions to start the conversation. And then we can just talk about working with back pain and back issues. 
Sounds good. I'll make up some answers, something that sounds like like reasonable. Like I know what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. All right. I'll make up some questions too. Actually, you you got some great ones there on our, our our whiteboard. How first of all, how prevalent is back pain? What's the deal? I mean, we all know it's kind of common, but like how common? What's that mean? Yeah, certainly. I think if we if we base it just on purely subjective statistics of who comes into your office wanting help and what do they want help with. Back pain is pretty darn common, um, but the at least I know the the prevalent statistics around back pain that I've seen hanging around for a couple of decades that hasn't changed too much is that somewhere around seventy five to eighty percent of the population will experience at least one episode of back pain in their life. So uh, let's say that's a pretty common thing. You know, happens to a lot of folks. So and you know, and- yeah, I was just gonna say one of the biggest problems around that is that you know. It's not, in many cases, a simple thing. We just can't say like, oh, this is your back pain. This is the answer. It's it's just, uh, you know, I was going to ask it's you when I was thinking about this. Pretty going through broad this, term. Yeah, yeah. Going through this outline. Do you remember, this is when you and I would have been young. I don't see them around too much. Remember, do you remember those commercials for Doan's Pills? I don't remember much from when I was young. I remember the music yeah. I used to listen to. Yeah, but no, there was a, a product called Don. I think it was D-O-A-N, Don's Pills. That was always about like, hey, okay. you got a bad backache? Take Don's oh, Pills. Man. And it was like, it was yeah, that man. was supposed to be the solution for your backache complaints. But, it's yeah. been with us forever. It's a huge uh, medical complaint. It's the chief musculoskeletal complaint in terms of lost productivity hours and health expense, health uh, care related expenses in the world. Back pain mm-hmm. is. And it's non-specific. We don't, you know, it's just a big lump of uh, various causalities or mechanisms, or a lot of it's a mystery too. So there's tons of research that's done on this back pain question because it's so needed and so easy to find research funding and so easy to find subjects to look into. So there's, it's a big deal. And it's interesting to note that with all that interest in it and with all the money and everything that's been poured into it, we still don't know what's causing a lot of people's back pains. Uh, and yeah, you know, we, that's, we have some clues, but you're right. It's a lot of it's still nonspecific, which means. Yeah. We don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Why is it so common? Do you think? Well, I think it's, uh, I think personally it's, it's so common because there's a lot of stuff going on there and we're still learning new things. I mean, I just learned some new stuff in the last couple of weeks. So I'm going to talk about here in just a little bit of things that I, I mean, I've been studying this stuff for decades and I'm still learning new things about potential causes of back pain. And, you know, we've further developed our, our research capabilities to look at biomechanical models and to look at uh, neurological models and, and to look at, you know, psychosocial models that all these factors play a role in it. And it is, it's just rarely one simple thing, but there's just a lot of things that can go wrong in that area, which kind of makes sense if you think about it being the the central area of both structure, uh, weight transmission throughout the body and maintenance of the upright posture and the central area of communication with the neurological system and the spinal cord there. There's just a lot of potential things that can go haywire in that area. Okay. So you, you, you think it's common because it's just a complex uh, mechanical and neurological situation. Yeah. I mean, to me, that, other... that kind of is like a, that, yeah. that's, that's what I see at least. What do you think? Okay. Uh, yeah, that makes sense to me. That's it makes mm-hmm. sense to me. And honestly, I haven't really asked myself that question. Why is it so common? I mean, I, I know some of the rote answers that, you know, now we're upright. We, maybe we 
evolved, our structure evolved as quadrupeds, and then they went upright, and that changed the vector of loading through a structure that, you know, evolved horizontally, if you go by that theory, and then came vertical. That's one. The, you know, there's also um, uh, the idea that we're move, we don't move enough, and mm -hmm. they spend a lot of time sitting. That's a big one. That's yeah. it. That makes sense to me. Maybe they're just talking to me. I don't know, but uh, that's, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm always, we're going to get to it, I know, but I'm always, when I hear these questions, what is it, what causes it, why is it common? I'm always thinking, okay, now how can I use that? What can I do about it? So let's, let's work toward that. That's yeah. what I'm interested in. Yeah. So, okay. What, what, and you're thinking, Whitney, what, what are some of the potential causes of the back pain itself? Yeah. So if we, we look at what are those things, at least that we're most likely to be identifying as causes of back pain. And, and this is interesting because it's shifted some over the years historically with, you know, different um, uh, perspectives from time to time. But, you know, the in, in at least in the world of orthopedics, which is kind of where I feel more familiar, having spent more time sort of delving into that kind of stuff, there's a lot of emphasis yeah. on potential structural issues in there. And this is a lot about um, disc pathologies. Um, spinal um, dysfunctions, mainly around the facet joints. Again, the facet joints are the articulating surface between adjacent vertebra, keeping in mind that vertebra don't articulate with each other in the big bodies where they're bearing weight, but it's mostly in the, in the facet joints, which are guiding movement. And uh, those facet joints, like any other joint of the body, have a lot of sensory receptors in there and are susceptible to joint degeneration, arthritis, and 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 all those kinds of things. Those are the main structural things with with bony surfaces in there. Well, let me see if I got it. You're saying yeah. weight bearing doesn't happen to the facets, and is the weight you're saying weight bearing happens through the disc structures probably. In in normal spinal mechanics, I'm not going to say any okay. weight, but the majority of weight would be going through the yeah. bodies of the vertebra. But then you take postural um, aberrations, let's call them something like the exaggerated wow. lumbar lordosis. Where a person I'm has a, you say that. Yeah, <laughs> greater sway back or greater curvature in the spinal region in the lumbar spine, for example. Now that center of load has shifted in a posterior direction, and more of the posterior vertebral arch structures are carrying that weight load. So it can happen, and that's Ooh. the kind of thing that would lead to structural problems of of you know, we see that with stress fractures in the pars interarticularis and and facet joint irritation, that kind of thing. Okay. All right. Uh, keep going. Is there more? Yeah. Lots more here. So when we talk about, um, again, this kind of gets into, I think, history too, looking at you know what's, what is the nature of how the back pain originated? Because we have uh, traumatic forces that may have caused uh, injury, damage to the spine, the back, and this will include you know, you may have fractures in the vertebra. You may have, you know, possible dislocations or displacements that may do that. But also now you're talking soft tissue involvement, like ligament sprains, uh, muscle strains, yeah. you know, muscle tendinous disorders, things like that, that are associated with force overloads on the spine. And this might be repetitive overloads, or it could be, you know, sudden, you know, whiplash type, uh, sudden individual force loads that might cause those kinds of things. So, those are things mm -hmm. from traumatic force, uh, either high velocity or very high load, unusual loads on those forces that they're having to withstand. 
And then there's mm-hmm. sort of the the counter to that, which is the chronic overload from, uh, we see this a lot in, in the myofascial tissues in poor postures being loaded extensively, but then so are the, some of the other structural mechanical um, uh, elements of, of the spine. Like the, the disc is exposed to greater compressive loads from low level compression over time. Let's say like sitting with a poor slouched posture. You know, there's there's greater compressive loads on the disc in doing that than there is in many of the lifting activities when people are, are doing heavy lifting things. So, um, you know, there's commonly been sort of a, ever since the, oh, what was this in um, Gordon Waddell's book, Back Pain Revolution, I think is the name of that book. Um, he spoke of uh, this time period in medicine from about the mid uh 1900s uh up through the you know later part of the of that century called the dynasty of the disc where once it was discovered that the disc was playing a role in a lot of these things we uh started blaming the disc for all kinds of things with uh back pain and that led to lots of the disc surgeries and all that kind of stuff with an overemphasis on on the role of the disc in many instances i think yeah frank willard was presenting in berlin at the fascial congress there on back pain and he He's gave a statistic that really surprised me, but I've heard it in a few places since then. He said it used to be thought that 80% of back pain was related to disc issues. Now, as they dial it down and do a larger analysis, it's probably somewhere, he said, around 4% of people's Four. back pain. Four. Wow. And that's, that's, again, I've seen that in a few places now where there absolutely is, but there are times that the discs can cause back pain, but they're probably much less one in 25 or whatever it is than we used to think. And he, he said, of course he was at the fascial Congress. So he's talking to a, you know, soft tissue oriented audience. He said somewhere around 60% myofascial pain, which is a pretty big bucket too. Yeah. But that says in his model, more of a soft tissue, not susceptive generator than the articular one. Yeah. The thing that I find interesting about that, and this is something I'm kind of like, still swirling around in my head um, is that in many of these instances where there is soft tissue pain in those areas being generated um, and the nociception is primarily being generated in the soft tissues, the question often comes up, why are those soft tissues generating excessive nociceptive input? Because I think in a lot of instances, there are in fact, spinal irritants that we're just not good at identifying. And what happens, I was thinking about this analogy the other day of um, of a sound system in your house. Um, you've got, let's say, like a, a, a nice amplifier or something that's, that's putting the music together, and then it plays through the speakers. And essentially, your myofascial tissues are like the speakers. So this is where you hear the action going on. So when you got a problem... You feel that or hear that in the myofascial tissues. And what we often do as manual therapists is we can reach over to that knob that's on the speaker and turn the volume maybe of the speaker of the of the music down and affect some things in there. But the reality is if there's bad music playing from your sound system, you don't change that until you go and change what's playing on the sound system. And that oftentimes is the central nervous system that's playing the bad music that gets spread out to the myofascial system, which becomes then the symptomatic part of that process. So 
Um, wow, anyway. you just described. And did you say? Did you finish your thought? Because I'm yeah. about to yeah, like yeah. on it. You yeah. just described it in an exactly opposite direction as I think of it. All right. Well, tell me about that. I thought the brain was the speaker. In other words, like the the input is, you know, the pain is in the brain idea where it's actually the experience that's happening in our central nervous system. And the signal is just one of the inputs in the speaker wire, say. And yeah, the reason I would say it this way is, is because people don't come in and say my brain hurts. They come in and say my back hurts or my leg yeah. hurts, you know, so yeah, that's, that's right. where. The, well, they don't, they don't come in and say, I have a bad speaker. They say that record sucks too. Yeah, right. So yeah. You know, and that's but, to me where that's the central nervous system problem with, yeah, that's really just a bad song. You know, you got to change the music in there. And okay. um, all right. So anyway, it's. it's Something yeah, I could go for the like, analogy, but uh, yeah. that's, they're both analogies. But that is that is a factor, isn't it? That yeah. uh, there is signal, and so far in your list, there there's signal explanations. We got structural, we got disc, we got facets, we got traumatic forces, we have tissue effects, and that's pretty uh, common the way to think about it, that. There's a signal generating mechanism, yeah, and that that's the pain producer. Yeah, and now you're bringing the central nervous system which is a whole different modulator. Whole yeah, so we issue. haven't really touched on that as a, another big causative factor. So, I mean, this is yeah. related because when you talk about disc pathology, you're usually talking about discs are pressing on nerve roots or or in some cases in the low back, maybe even on the spinal cord in like a cauda equina syndrome or something like that. So we have mechanical compression of neural structures. But Another one that I think is just not getting adequate attention, and this is something that's kind of in your ballpark because I know you're um, big into looking at the issues of inflammation around various different tissues, but there's a lot of yeah. potential. And I think this would probably bump up the numbers of your colleague that was talking about 5% of the discs involved in in back pain. I think those numbers would go up if we really talked about chemical irritants to the nerves as a result of mm -hmm. disc pathology. Um, mm -hmm. For example, there's a, there is a chemical, um, an enzyme in the nucleus pulposus of the disc called phospholipase A2, which mm -hmm. can leak out with just a really small, even a small annular tear on the outside of the disc and leak into the yeah. uh, intervertebral space. And that can irritate the spinal cord and or the nerve roots and cause... Yeah that same kind of neural irritation and you go get imaging and they'll say, no, you don't have a, a disc protrusion pressing on a nerve root. There's nothing there that's pressing on the nerve root because that's right. it's not a mechanical problem. It's a, it's a chemical one. Right. So the direct chemical irritation of the nerves. Now there is some really compelling and pretty common research that inflammation in one structure can evoke an inflammatory irritation in surrounding structures. Even yeah. if there's no mechanical uh, compression or no, you know, uh, physiological mechanism for that. Just the inflammatory uh, cytokines and processes nearby can really make something hurt. So, yeah, the, yeah, the discs could be part of that. Any of the soft tissues around the spines, the bone, the in plates themselves, mm -hmm. all of those are thought to be places where inflammatory processes could be happening, either because of an injury or because of a metabolic or inflammatory uh, immunological issue that would result in just back pain. So yeah, our classical explanations are largely mechanical and compressive, but there's probably a whole category of pain that is chemical, like you say, or inflammatory or just irritation independent from mechanical forces. 
Yeah. And those are harder to see and harder to measure. So they don't get, um, I think, uh, yeah, identified if, as often. Right. We don't have an inflammatory MRI. We don't have, you know, there are, yeah. you know, there are assays and things, but they're pretty complex. Yep. That's right. But fortunately, the good news is coming. Fortunately, that we can work with it still. You know, even yeah. if you can't see it on MRI, there's definitely ways to work with that pain, whether it's um, compressive, mechanical, or inflammatory irritation or sensitization. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, you said something there interesting. You said, is back pain a psychological problem? That's a question you're throwing out for us to discuss. Yeah. What do you What do you think? Well, I, you know, so often people get told yeah. oftentimes that this is just a psychological problem. Uh, you know, driven thing. And oftentimes, you know, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I think there's a lot of truth in it is that this does tend to happen in a lot of instances where a healthcare professional is unable to identify any other factor. And then this just gets lumped mm -hmm. into the category of this is in your head or this is a psychological problem you have to deal with it somehow or other. Yes. Um, That's right. I certainly think there are psychosocial factors that can play a part in any kind of pain situation in a lot of different areas. But I do think that a lot of people's, uh, a larger percentage of people's back pain gets blamed on these psychological factors simply because practitioners are not thorough or comprehensive enough in finding some other solution. Um, so you so, think that if they were thorough, they could find a mechanical solution? I wouldn't say necessarily mechanical, um, but <laughs> some other kind of solution. You, but go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Could be mechanical. Kind of could be you know neurological. Uh -huh. Could be metabolic. Um, but I would say some other solution uh, that might at least okay. be playing a significant part of that. And that's not saying that there's no psychological component to these things. I just think okay. that it, uh, it, for some people, unfortunately, that component gets um, overplayed as a part or, of. of uh, you know, ignorance right. on the part of the practitioners who's, who are unable to find find a solution. Well, because because the the musculoskeletal classical world knows so little about the influence of psychological factors, it's a big black box where things get swept. Yeah. And because stress, for example, is such a common factor in so much pain and so many issues that again it can be just a big rug to sweep things under it, yeah. and it's you know it's a definite factor but that doesn't always leave people with places to go and like you said it can even lead to that invalidation of feeling dismissed like yes yeah. just something it's you that's doing that to yourself yeah yeah absolutely hey can i read you a quote that really that really struck out oh let's hear stuck it out for about yeah. this okay this is uh from a paper by hansen 2016 he says, Hans Krauss, MD, described as the father of sports medicine in the United States, postul postulated that nonspecific back pain is a, quote, disease of civilization caused by sedentary lifestyle, stress, and suppression of the fight or flight response. Krauss wrote in 1970, he was very influential in back pain uh, treatments and thinking back then, that in our civilized cities, we lead the lives of caged animals. And he theorized that a lack of exercise and emotional stress leads to muscle weakness, stiffness, pain, and injury. 45 years later, Hansen wrote, Dr. Mincy, which I believe is how Dr. Mincy pronounces it. I'm going to mention him again a couple of places here. Immobilized rats, sorry rats, immobilized rats in a narrow tube, narrow tubes and discovered that this model of psychological stress 
induced sensitization of dorsal wall neurons. Anyway, these poor rats, he stressed out by keeping them in narrow tubes and measuring what was happening in their nervous system for the signals that related to nociceptive activity. And sure enough, the dorsal horn neurons got sensitized to receiving input from the low back, especially validating Krauss's theory in a laboratory setting. So Mensi was doing these really interesting experiments where he's saying, does if we stress out an animal, does the sensitization change? Does the sensitivity to signals change? And showed pretty convincingly, and that's pretty well accepted that stress is it's like turning up the uh, turning up the mic here. You yeah. just pick up a lot more background noise, and everything comes in louder in a way too. Yep. The stress yeah. the stress sets the for that. Yeah. I heard an interesting analogy, somebody speaking about this saying that it's just like if you were, you know, if when you bite your lip accidentally uh, and then yeah. that is super sensitized. So now it takes just a little bit of irritant now further to make that be very painful again and very painful again. Every time you now have this little yeah. swollen thing inside your lip because you bit it or something is going on there, every little bit of increase in that magnifies it and ramps it up even further. So yeah, I think we have to deal with that a lot. That, well, yeah, yeah, the biting lip analogy, the sunburn is another one, going into the shower after a sunburn. Yeah, yeah. But uh -huh. even, those are both like, those are both injuries. What are you mm -hmm. saying? That even in this case, even just stress, not being able to move, which is not an injury, it's mm -hmm. stressful, changes the perception of pain. And that's that goes with a lot of research that says pain is so contextual Yeah. that uh, what we can experience. And back pain seems to be one of those ones that emerges out of the background of everything going on. Mm -hmm. That so much of of the input, these multifactorial inputs result in something like back pain. Others, there's like TMJ, other ones that seem to be the weak links or the canaries in the coal mine or whatever they are that just respond to this background. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And we have, you know, lots more research now too about things like, you know, that the whole flight or fight uh, response uh -huh. staying activated for long periods of time and suppressing parasympathetic activity like you know the normal metabolic processes of digestion and and tissue repair and things like that that would go on That's that right. would allow right. you to be able to get back to normal function but we keep that ramped up for so long then it's no wonder we continue to have some pain and and, and problems associated with that across the systemic the whole systemic system yeah, 40 per, okay, I got to go back a little bit to some of the mechanical ones. You were doing your list of mechanical ones. I forgot yeah. to put mine in. What about fascia? Cuz there's a, you know, we got nerves, we got muscles, we got bones. Yeah. We have inflammatory process, but there's also, of course, in my world, a lot of emphasis, a lot of attention paid to the wrappings of those things. Yeah. Per se. And uh there's some really compelling research that says it changes in back pain, either that or its changes produce back pain. It's not always clear which way that goes, mm -hmm. but that it's thicker in people with low back pain. This is Langevin and Fernandez, that it slides less, especially in low back pain. Those layers of the thoracolumbar fascia, say, the big fascial wrappings of most of the back structures, there's less glide between them in people with low back pain. And there's some, you know, there's, there's some good evidence that says when we change the thickness or we change the gliding through things like manual therapy that the pain changes too. Yeah. Yeah. And then back to your sympathetic thing, about 40% of the nerves in the thoracolumbar fascia are sympathetic nerves. And we don't quite know what that means because it just amazes me how much of this parasympathetic, sympathetic uh, fight or flight, rest and repair model is pure theory. 
-hmm. with very little empirical uh, research or evidence or testing, but we we know that about 40% of the fascial uh, nerve fibers in the thoracolumbar fascia are sympathetic. That could be simply because they regulate vascular um, uh, vascular dilation and contraction. Yeah, but yeah. it could be too that there's a link there between the stress factors that seem to show up earlier in the low as low back pain than say other parts of the body. Mm -hmm. People don't come in and say I got ankle pain and you say it's stress. Yeah, but back pain is one where we go. Oh yeah, that's the right. maybe stress factor. Yeah, that is interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see if I forgot any other of my important points. Oh, the highest risk factor for low back pain in one big study was this Ehrlich. I'll put the the uh, the uh, link in the show notes. World Health World Health Organization sponsored study of low back pain. The highest risk risk factor for low back pain dissatisfaction at work. Really? Huh. Not, Interesting. not occupation, not gender, not mm -hmm. age, mm -hmm. nothing, dissatisfaction at work. Yeah. And, and that would certainly uh, point to a lot of those stress-induced things that we've been talking about as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Isn't that interesting? Gosh, do you know anything that's good for stress? Um, uh, Doan's pills. <laughs> that's it <laughs> taking a pill that right. has been advertised and has convinced you it's effective is proven right. to help you with your back pain it's yeah. true right. as well as some really good stuff for stress like yeah uh, man therapy maybe yeah you don't get the reference yeah there's things yeah. we do through that and uh boy i'm i'm biting my tongue because there's so much i want to say about that when we get around to like what you can do about it yeah yeah, so let's, lots of let's things to turn down the, the yeah turn down the descending modulation from from the the stuff that we're doing here. But anyway, go ahead. What were you going to say? I'll turn it maybe turn it up if I want to. Yeah, turn up the, the, I wanna, yeah. Thank you. Oh, turn up the descending uh, turn modulation. down the yeah turn down the pain experience and uh, yeah even things we can do to turn down that signal that nociceptive signal by these mechanical factors like you mentioned or gliding factors or thickness yeah. factors those are probably all signal models or inflammatory load. But then we can turn down the sensitivity through stress modulation, through some other things that help descending modulation, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Okay. How do you figure out though? What's the cause? You want to say anything about that? How do you figure out what the cause yeah, this of the back pain? Is, I mean, I've, I've certainly been trying to do this for, for many, many years. But uh, you know, one of the things that I, I noted in here was I came across this study years ago, and I cannot remember the exact title of it, but it was something to the effect of, and it was about back pain, and it's something to the effect of what you have is who you see. So meaning you've got back pain and you go to see a chiropractor and you've got a subluxation. Uh, you go to see a, a see. massage therapist and you have myofascial trigger points. You go to see an acupuncture right. physician and you have chi blockage, you know, and so everybody- You'll see will Abraham have, Maslow and you have a nail because what exactly, he has a yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, so- it's all about the lens through which that practitioner is looking at your back oftentimes to figure out what's going on. And there's probably some element of truth in everybody's perspective there. But um, I think it becomes really difficult to to nail that down in many situations. But the one thing that I would say about this is speak. whoever you are and whatever your particular orientation is, yes. the better is your history taking and your evaluation process, the more comprehensive is your evaluation and your picture and understanding of how yeah. to interpret that 
the better you're going to be at nailing down a larger number of relevant factors uh, that's that's in there. So um, that's, again, just putting in another plug for the important value of assessment and evaluation because I just, uh, yes. and this is something that Stu McGill said to us in our uh, podcast with him a while back too. He said he just doesn't uh, really buy that idea of nonspecific low back pain. He said uh, mm. most of the time it's because somebody just wasn't thorough enough in their evaluation to really nail it down what it really was. Well, and he's maybe he's maybe the one of the extremes of that because he, again, his method when he was given free reign just to do it how he thought it should be was a three-hour initial yeah. session or something like that, but most right. of which was history taking yeah. and experimentation. But the point being that you're making, which I really agree with, is that the clearer we get on what produces the pain, what possible factors might be from people's past, but especially what's happening with it now, the more, uh, well, maybe the fewer times we have to reach in the toolbox to find the tool yeah. that makes a difference. Yeah. If it, you know, again, you, you, you said it helps us nail it down. Uh, I like the now. I like the comparison there because, again, there may not be a hammer. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. it is, but maybe there's something else that. If, the more we understand it, the more the sense we have of it, the more uh, likely it is that our working hypothesis we start with is going to get some results. And that's how yeah. we know we got the right tool at the right time for the right person. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And what I also find interesting is, and this has been true a lot for us in the massage and manual therapy world over the years, is. Um, how our understanding of what we do has changed a lot, you know, yes. in terms of thinking that we're doing something for, at least let me speak for me personally, my own personal belief uh, and understanding around what I'm doing shifted a lot from um, more structural and mechanical oriented things about I'm, you know, making this tissue softer and I'm changing this alignment thing and I'm doing this kind of thing to mm-hmm. something that's a lot more, uh, richly involved with the nervous system and the responses of the brain and the, the you know the effects of those things on many like on the speaker system that I talked about earlier on how that plays out in those soft gotcha. tissues in the body. So um, and I don't Huge. think we're at the end yet. I think we're still evolving that understanding, but it is interesting to watch that change significantly. All right, I just thought of it. Using our speaker analogy, I just thought of an interesting scenario. There's, If you want someone to have a good experience listening to music, you could spend a lot of time picking the right record. Mm-hmm. There's something to that. But um, there's also something about predisposing the listener to a state of enjoyment, getting mm-hmm. them in the mood or finding the right timing for this or helping them really uh, receive the music in the right way. So that I, I'm going to say that I could, if I had the right circumstances for someone, I could play like a Doris Day record and it would be radically yeah, uh, radically informative, aesthetic uh, yeah. epiphany for someone, yeah. say. Yeah. So here's that, here's that m- music and speaker analogy taken to another level there, which is you can okay. get really good music and have really good speakers and play it in a yes. really crappy room of acoustics and it oh, sounds bad. Yeah. You so know, that's one of the contextual factors. Yeah. That's the contextual that's factors right. right there is that like you make that room really nice, acoustically nice. ideal, and then the good yes. music played through the good speakers in parentheses, myofascial system or, or body system, whatever you're uh-huh. talking about there. Now the room sounds really good. And that's right. what you're, that's you're talking about with the contextual. <laughs> that's good. So, yeah. That's right. Or like if someone's working, if someone's like in the middle of composing an important text and you try to get them to listen to your music, 
It's like yeah. the receptivity is a contextual factor too, the timing of that. Yeah. So you could be the best speaker system in the world, the best room, the best music. Forget Doris yeah. Day. Let's pull something out of the out really special out of the collection. If it's not the right time, forget it. Same yeah. with our manual therapy interventions too. So much of it is priming the pump and getting that preparatory phase of getting someone in that receptive state and yeah. finding the right timing for different things we do. Yeah. So, uh, well, do you want to talk about uh, posture? Did you get to say what you wanted to there? Yeah, you know, that's, I think we kind of touched on a number of those things. And again, that is a huge rabbit hole to get down because it certainly uh -huh. has been a um, a prominent uh, piece of a lot of models of back of back pain yes. for a long time. And, uh, yes. you know, I'm, I'm kind of of that camp of, um, I don't think, uh, and this is mainly talking about static posture here, but they, again, there are postural positions that you might do, for example, in an occupation where let's say your occupation is somewhere you have to bend over for long periods uh -huh. of the day to work on something that's, yeah. you know, down below you. That's going to put Dentist. a lot of mechanical stresses on your, on your back for sure. But mm, I think when we massage. say the word, yeah, when we say the word posture, we're oftentimes speaking of that kind of evaluating somebody's standing postural position. And, you I know, um, I think, uh, there's, uh, there's been a lot of, in certain camps, a lot of emphasis on posture in the past that may have uh, mm -hmm. changed significantly. And there's been a lot of research that's, I don't know if we'd see a lot of research, but certainly some research recently that has indicated some of these postural factors may not have been as important as we may have once thought they were. And I'm kind of of the camp now of saying that, uh, you know, I, I'm certainly not um, all the way on that end of the spectrum with those individuals say posture is not, uh, you know, there are people that say, you know, posture is not uh, a significant cause of, of pain or whatever. Like I can't go there because uh -huh. I know not for there. myself every day at the end of work, when I go yes. in the kitchen to cook dinner and I'm, you know, yes. chopping vegetables over the counter, my back hurts after 45 minutes there. And it's about okay. posture, you know, so I know that's true. So was um, it posture or was it lack of movement? It's not lack of movement because I'm moving all around in, in the right. kitchen and doing things. But again, those oh, no, two I mean, are hard the, to, is it the 40, is it the 45 yeah. minutes of the posture in or is it the 45 minutes of not moving? I think it's more of like the, the slightly leaning over posture. But I do think non-movement, non, let's say non-varied um, movement. Um, you know, movement okay. that's not uh, varied enough absolutely plays yes. a role in that because, you know, my back can also get really tight after a few minutes yeah. of just sitting in a position of right. non-alternating movement. So, um, well, that's, those are arguments in the debate, aren't they? That, yeah. That there is historically an emphasis on the correct position, getting the posture right and like in yeah. a static mode. And that's the view that maybe that was, uh, sorry, pull me out of the rabbit hole if I'm spending too much time here. Right, yeah. Maybe that was the result of the technology being phot photography, which is a still image. That's yeah. what we use to understand and analyze and think about things. Yeah. So that we there was a lot of historical emphasis in our field on mm -hmm. static position. And that was actually a radical contextual change from what had come before. Yeah, because it was saying, oh, but now that the, even the way someone stands could be part of their back pain. That was just like a radical new thought, and yeah. was a contextual factor in that way because it hadn't really been considered. Yeah, and so that really uh, got some traction, got some mileage. Yeah. So then maybe again paralleling maybe the development of film or video, we started to think, okay, so maybe it's the way we're moving mm -hmm. that does it. Maybe it's not just the way we're standing, but it's the way we're moving. Yeah. And a uh, similar debate there too. Like, yeah, there are probably 
ways to move that help you feel better than others. But the argument being, well, maybe it's the amount of movement that's more important than the exact way you move. Or like you said, the variety or the timing or the magnitude, those kind of things being important as much as the correct, exactly correct patterning or correct alignment movement being less of a factor. Yeah. Some of the research you mentioned is things like uh, there hasn't been a study that can line up, uh, do it like a police lineup of pain and be effective. Like who, who in this lineup has pain? Can you spot it visually? There hasn't been a study that could do that of even in friendly uh, environment, academic environments where that is their model. There's yeah. a really low correlation between visual analysis and pain. Yeah. Yeah. So that's and I heard a, a quote from someone that I think this was on social media like a year or two ago or something like that. And I thought like, I love that quote. I'm going, that's the camp where I live in now, which is uh, said something like, Posture is not necessarily a cause of back pain, except when it is, yeah. you know. And uh-huh. so uh, yeah. that's just saying, like, it's probably not uh, a factor as much as we might have thought it is. But is it irrelevant? Absolutely not. It's going to be a factor in certain cases. But your role is then to uncover when is it relevant and, ha- and to what degree yes. and how. You know, that's the trick. And then what what are the levers for shifting that? What are the what are the ways yeah. people could work with posture? Because that's a whole other question too. Yeah. So yeah, you mentioned Stu McGill. He, he's he's been uh, accused of overemphasizing posture, and he defends his position there radically. He says no, it's it's stiffness, mobility, balance. I'm probably mis mischaracterizing his response for sure, but he he's been an advocate for the right kind of stiffness and the right kind of adaptability balances. Mm-hmm. While Greg Lehman has really been, you know, radically questioning our various uh, explanations, he's been the spokesperson for that point of view. And his his last, at least last time I uh, took a training from him, his position was no posture is not so much of a factor, except in maybe really specialized weight bearing situations like powerlifting or something like that. That the small changes in posture probably he says so probably don't correlate with. Someone's pain. Yeah. But again, I'm I'm with you. It, it matters. It does matter. And it matters when it matters. But it, more and more in my own body, it is movement that seems the more direct correlation for me between when I'm comfortable and not comfortable. It's how much and how the right of movement I have. Yeah. Less than the, keeping the exact position. Yeah. And I think we're also, again, we're back to that issue that we t- we talked about, which is we're isolating posture in a much yeah. bigger vase of other stuff that it's mixed around with. It's like, well, you've got a you've got a, a big vegetable soup there and we're focusing on the carrots in there. And we have to remember uh, that there's a lot factor. of other things in the stoop, in the soup, you know, that are um going to be playing a factor in there that might interact with the carrots and make them taste differently or act differently or something like that. So I'm into That's the metaphors right. today. Like it's it's music and nice. amplifiers and soup and all kinds soup. of stuff. Let's do a big mix metaphor. Let's do have okay. some soup while we listen to our amplifier. Yeah. Well, I just thinking of that technological progression from photographs and static analysis to video and movement analysis. I wonder what's next. You know, I wonder as we start to get like uh, like artificial intelligence, uh, how that's going to change our understanding of pain in a way. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's like a whole other level that does include experience and does include the internal world of people, perhaps in an interesting way that expands our explanations and our thinking too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to. I don't know that I'm going to be around for this, but I think it'll. I think it'll happen. Is is the intersection between visual imaging and functional 
um, evaluations. So, for example, if you can blend yes. together the the imaging specialization of a of a moving uh, like a moving X-ray or a moving MRI image, where you can see things in motion, and at the same time, yeah. you can evaluate neural activity and say when is something getting irritated as you do this particular movement, and like what kinds of signals are getting uh, emphasized there. I think that'll be fascinating, um, but I don't know if I'll be around well, yeah. when that happens. So, and I want the emotional or neural or affective map of that. Like, when does someone get? Are startled when do they get upset when do they get relaxed when do they feel confident yeah because those also have correlations you know to the pain experience yeah at least as much as the signal finding the, right. signal, the mechanical correlations yeah. well you so. Whitney you had a couple of questions you want to talk about that I think are great ones but I'm wondering about the order what do you think about red flags do we rather than say that at the end should, can we finish up with like what we're going to do about it is that related yeah. to our role what do you want to talk about yeah, next? That's there's just a couple of things. I was just going to make a couple of highlights about this because I know there's, I mean, again, we could we could go down these rabbit holes for days at a time here. But there are a couple of important red flags to think about. Um, you know, okay. especially in, in my world, I think a lot about these kinds of things uh, with neurological sensations that indicate potential really problematic things. So, for example, if we're talking low back pain and, um, you know, somebody has – Usually with like disc or nerve root involvement, we will frequently see pain radiating down a lower extremity as as a common uh -huh. thing. And usually that's going to be a one-sided thing to whichever side the disc or whatever is protruding out and pressing on the nerve root. But when you have something like bilateral lower extremity neurological sensations and corresponding let's say bowel and bladder dysfunction along with that, and again, hopefully you will pick these things up in the history when you're doing a detailed evaluation – that could be indicative of a cauda equina syndrome where something is pressing on uh, the cauda equina. And that's a very, very serious problem that needs to be not only referred out, but possibly referred out to the emergency room because pressure on that cauda equina can interrupt blood flow to those nerves, which can cause permanent nerve damage for, for an individual. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of things that we can't just sort of brush off or let's see if we can just work on your legs and, you know, make it feel better or something like that. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things that indicate, um, you know, a much more serious uh, thing going on would be like the examples of the kinds of things that I think are important to be, to be on the watch out for. Okay. That was, that was the one you wanted, red flag you wanted to make sure to raise. Any other? That's a big one. And then I, I would also say to any, when we start seeing like uh pain sensations that are grossly out of proportion to what they should be with, you know, minor levels of movement or things like that, or, you know, things that might be indicating instability, like in a spondylolisthesis where there is clearly mm -hmm. vertebral movement and the translation of a vertebra because it's, it's really broken and, and translating and sliding forward. Those are mm -hmm. symptoms and signs and indicators of things that we don't want to be working on because we could aggravate them, make them worse, and they need to be you know, referred out to some other individuals. So um, yeah. those are the kind of things that that come, uh, especially on to, to my radar screen, as, as big things to be watching for. Yeah, and there's medical, there are medical conditions that people should know about and be addressing yeah. that can be related to back pain as well, too. So Yeah, it's, uh, visceral problems, know, somewhat, uh, things like that that might be problem. referring pain. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So Yeah, tumor, yeah. tumors, you know, things mm -hmm. like that, too. 
Yeah. But it's just like persistent back pain without medical evaluation is probably not a good thing. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, all, all very important factors, but that, you know, they play a part in, in us deciding what we can do. And this is, you know, kind of where we're going to go to next. Like, what are we doing? What can we do? Yeah. What do you think? What's, yeah. what's our sort of track with this? Oh, I, I, I'm, I get to start. I know okay. I'm, I'm throwing it back to you this time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we got all of these possible causes and factors and mechanisms. So now what do we do? Uh, I got a few key points, but again, just, just to ease into it a little bit, if context is a big part of it, the inflammatory load, the stress factors, the mechanical, the postural, the movement, all those things, the, the big questions here is how do we influence those things? We can influence like a, a, a myofascial structure under our hands. We can move a body. We can produce a sensation through our touch. Maybe there are tissue effects we can have. Certainly, we can have uh, autonomic effects with our work. But how about lifestyle factors? How do we influence those? Because sometimes, uh, maybe often, yeah. maybe always, that is a big factor in back pain. Yeah. Uh, and it's an open question for me, but I think, I think there's a lot we can do. Let's say my goal was to uh, help someone imagine moving, help someone move more. Now, that's not classically my scope of practice as a manual therapist. That would be more physical therapy, exercise physiology, strength conditioning, whatever. Maybe you have that background, maybe you don't. But that's the question I hold for myself as a manual therapist. How, what can I do with my hands in this session and with my words and my, my questions that makes it more likely someone's going to uh, feel their body and so move when it's uncomfortable? That's a big one. Or just be willing to try different things. Try, for, try going for a walk if they haven't been walking. Mm-hmm. And there's so much we can do to help someone experience comfort and relaxation and just a sense of ease in their body that then the you know the key thing is using that, taking that and using that. So just inquire, even inquiring about activities and uh, you know talking about someone's hikes or walks or whatever you know the ones in the area, just creating possibility for people can be such a big uh, and effective way to expand someone's possibilities as experiencing back pain. Yeah. And I don't think we should underemphasize the value and importance too of that amount of time that we spend with somebody that yeah. can touch on those factors because people are so accustomed and used to the seven to 12 minute uh, treatment time that they get with a lot of other health professionals or an ab- abbreviated time where they're being sort of pushed through the system there. And mm-hmm. it's hard to get to some of those things in that short period of time. And that is something that I think continues to remain a great value of the approaches of many manual therapy practitioners who can take more time and really address those contextual factors. Think about biomechanics, think about neurology, think about as you know the psychosocial domain in, in terms of what's happening here. Not necessarily that we're going to get into or be an expert in doing all those things, but we can at least understand the the ground through which those things might be displaying and playing out in the, in the current system. Right. And we can listen. We can understand yeah. and we can listen. We can mm-hmm. listen. And sometimes people just don't have a chance to really think it through for themselves or to have yeah. a receptive listen as the time to hear them out. Yeah. Those kind of things can be really valuable too. Right. So there's also uh, another contextual factor I'm easing in now toward the specific from the general. The yeah. other one that we can do a lot about is sleep. Mm-hmm. Sleep and back pain are 
highly, highly correlated. In fact, this, this is, I can't remember the reference. So maybe it's, maybe it's uh, in the, maybe it's an imaginary example of now, but it, it's, it was a real one that I heard. Uh, someone was going for back surgery. He got uh, told by his physician that he was finally a candidate for surgery after years of back pain. And that was the last thing he had to offer them. He searched out uh, the best back surgeon he could find who said, uh, listen, from your intake conversation, you're only sleeping, you know, five to six hours a night. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll operate on you if you can sleep eight hours a night for a month and still have pain. Otherwise, I don't mm -hmm. want to operate on you. Mm -hmm. So he made that his project is to sleep eight hours a night for a month. And in the story, at the end of that month of making sleep his primary focus, he said, you know, actually the back pain isn't nearly as bad, not bad enough to have surgery. I'd rather deal with this pain and focus on sleeping. Right. The effects of sleep. Yeah. And I think what ends up happening for so many of these back pain patients is that would be a great thing if they could sleep. And many of that's them can't the, sleep the because of the pain, that's right. you know, and because well, of the other factors that are that are present there. So how do you it's absolutely. a chicken and egg thing, you know, of how do you how do you it make is. that happen? Yeah. Well, yeah. we we can play a role because we can ease the intensity of someone's pain often, or we can help them feel more mobile or more relaxed, even if we don't totally erase the pain all the time, every session, that can really contribute to a better sense of restedness and better sleep. Yeah. And in these yeah. sometimes incremental ways, but sometimes in dramatic ways. Yeah. And I still think, I wish there were, I wish there were more night owl uh, massage therapists. I think there's like a night shift, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. bedtime service, go yeah. out call, tuck someone in, get them like really calm down yeah. at home. And yeah. then, you know, would that do a lot for sleep? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've but seen that. Even, yeah. Personally, uh, that? be an absolute factor because, you know, my wife has what's been diagnosed as yeah. fibromyalgia and chronic pain problems for years. And yeah. she gets a massage every night, but right before she goes to sleep. I mean, it's not a long one, but, you know, <laughs> a good 10, 15 minutes of work makes a world of difference mm -hmm. in terms of, is she going to sleep well? And if she doesn't sleep well, she's going to have a crappy day the next day and she's going to be, you know, in a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. So it just, uh, I know it absolutely makes a huge difference, but uh, that would be great. It would be a great business for the night owl massage. You can come, the massage therapist That's can right. come and work on you right before you go to sleep. You know, how can service? That's right. Yeah. yeah awesome. Yeah. Well, that's great. No wonder she keeps you around, Whitney. That's, really that's nice probably around. it. You know, it's the one thing. It's like, that's irreplaceable right right now. So everything else, yeah. So. All right. My other my other three things of what we can do, and I want to hear yours too. Okay. Um, you think of, well, I think of what I'm doing as, well, let's start with the tissue. I do think about gliding of the layers because again, there's some research basis that shows that that is correlated with feeling better in back pain. Mm -hmm. if, if you have more glide, you have less pain. So that's a big part of the model that I teach and that I practice. I use in my practice too, is that gliding factor. Mm -hmm. Less about stretching or remodeling or molding, but a lot more about gliding. Uh, the other one is think big, both like mechanical connections. It's not always just the back. It's, it can, you can find the effects by working with the limbs often or with the breathing or with the neck mm -hmm. or, you know, these big, probably mechanical connections that explain those but certainly thinking big about in terms of like inflammatory influences is someone just really uh jacked up from stress or they really take you know 
Is their diet out of control? Are they not exercising? All those things will increase the inflammatory reactivity of the body in a way that no matter what we do with our hands, uh, they're going to be dealing with some of that inflammatory load. Yeah. So that's another way we think big. We think beyond just that spot that hurts. Yeah. And I think just taking your your analogy too about the the sliding, gliding, and the the enhancing pliability of those tissues in there goes a long way into other things like if I can do that and it feels better for me now to bend yeah. over and pick up that pencil that fell on the floor, well, that didn't hurt, you know, when it usually would hurt before. Just being yes. able to do some of those kinds of movements leads to more movements. And we know oftentimes that movement right. is really the best antidote for a lot of those back pain complaints. So um, any Absolutely. of those things that we can do to to make an intervention, to change the neurological sensation of what movement is and what's going to hurt and what's not going to hurt, I think are extremely valuable. Huge. Uh, men say this guy that I mentioned who immobilized the the rats in the tube. He did another study where he had sensitized rats swimming. Uh, he called it short-term swimming. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and he did a control group uh, that uh, didn't swim, and he measured their sensitization over days. And in five days, the, the rats that were swimming had a much level lower level of sensitization than the mm -hmm. control group. Yeah. So his takeaway was that yeah, just movement, just exercising helps lower that sensitivity of the neurons. Never mind signal, never mind context, never mind any of that itself. Just the just the amount of of gain you got turned up in your amplifier changes just with exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. I got one more. Yeah, let's hear it. And it's it's related to that example I just gave. Normal, we can think of our touch as changing tissue, gliding, etc. We can think about the context, but we can also think about our touch as normalizing sensation or turning down the sensitivity through mm -hmm. the touch itself. So it's like if I imagine that what I'm doing is helping adjust that amp's uh, output, if I get mm -hmm. or adjust this, the microphone's reactivity, there's lots I can do anywhere in the body, any level of pressure. It yeah. can help lower that sensitivity of that system. And that helps a lot with pain. Yeah. Just to yeah. remember that our touch has that power as well. Right. And I think, you know, for me, just, uh, and I'm, I'm just going to say I'm in agreement with all of those things that you said. Those will all be sort of in the, in the ballpark of the things that I would emphasize doing. But um, also, Good. I would take the, the uh, approach of thinking that, you know, a lot of my whole orientation toward this kind of thing has changed a lot from thinking about, a very cause effect relationship between what I do and what is wrong. Uh -huh. Like do mm -hmm. this for that particular thing, because you're going to get this result. Um, I'm a lot less in that camp now than I used to be in a lot more in the camp of, we can do a wide variety of things in the, the context and nature of the way in which we touch people. And the other thing is that you take something like a really specific technique. Let's say, you know, somebody's got low back pain that seems to be myofascial in its at least origin or presentation to a large extent. And you go in and when you work really specifically on those multifidus that are the most painful ones and they say, oh, that's it right there. You know, that's it. Like right. you nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. That yep. in and of itself, the the sort of uh, sensation that the, the client is now going to have about you are an expert at finding those spots in me and that whole thing gets back into the, the sensation of, of a confidence in you and your ability, which plays a big role in the outcome factors that are happening there too. So I think a lot of times the specificity yeah. of that type of work in yeah. terms of really getting those results 
plays a lot into context, again, that we've talked about of, of why that kind of thing can get to be really effective. Not so much because right. I'm really doing something to those individual multifidi fibers that I thought I was doing in there, but the specificity with which I'm treating them and making those kinds of results, um, maybe really uh, getting bigger pieces. Really great super point. And my eyebrow is raising around the way we say really. Mm-hmm. I'm not really doing something. I'm just increasing your confidence. It's like, what is reality? What is yeah. reality here anyway? Pain yeah. has its own reality. It's just, and that confidence, like you said, or the sense that it can change. Like if he can press on something and then it feels better, gosh, my pain is changeable. That gives me a lot of hope. That's a yeah. real experience as much yeah. as a real congestion in the ischemic function yeah. of the tissue, say. Yeah. yeah. So I do believe that I'm putting pressure on the multifidus and, you know, giving a tangential force to it. Uh, So I am really doing something to that tissue, but the effect of what happens when I do that is I think where the question marks are for me a lot more so. Nice. Um, Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Multifidus deserve honorable mention, thoracolumbar fascia, iliolumbar ligaments, arcuate ligament. There's like some favorite little, like you said, places that really can give some of that experience of like, wow, this is yeah. my back pain. It's changeable. Yeah. But uh, they're, they're great ones to remember too. Yeah. All right. So anything else? I think, again, I think we could go, we could talk for a couple of days on, on all these kinds of things, but that's probably a, a good place for us to wrap for the day here. Okay. So um, uh, that's, that's where we'll take it back to. Great. Nice yeah. talking to you. I'll, I'll yeah. do our closing sponsor spot. Yeah. And that's for Handspring. Cause when I was looking for a publisher for a book, I wanted to write, I was lucky enough to have ended up with two offers, one from a huge international media conglomerate, lucky me. And the other from Handspring publishing, which at the time was just four people in Scotland with a love of great books and a love of our field. I'm glad I chose to go with Handspring is not only did they help me make the books I wanted to write, the Advanced Myofascial Technique Series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And Handspring has recently joined with Jessica Kingsley Publishers, Integrative Health Singing Dragon Imprint. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check out the long list of great titles they have, and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. And thanks again, Handspring. We thank you to all of our sponsors, and especially thank you to you, the listeners who are hanging out with us. Hope you got some interesting uh, insights on back stuff today. You can stop by our sites for uh, video, show notes, transcripts, and any extras. You can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that for you? Advanced-trainings.com. And if you have any questions or things that you'd like to hear us talk about, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media under our names. Uh, my name today, I'll take Whitney Lowe. And how about for you, sir? Till Luca is my name. Rate right. us on Apple Podcasts. We really do read the reviews there. Rate us, just click a star or just write a little thing. It's so great to hear how this is landing for you. And that's a wonderful way to let us know, but also to let other people know because that's how people find it. Apple Podcast has a huge influence on podcast ranking on all platforms. So when you rate us there or comment there, it really helps people find the show. You can also hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. Please do share the word and tell a friend. 
Sounds great. Well, thank you again for the great discussion. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and we'll pick it up again on the next go round. Me too, Ed. See you later. Okay. See ya.